Good afternoon to everyone from warm, humid, and these days, rainy Singapore. And welcome back to our webinar series for public education and outreach entitled Bridging the Gulf. Last Friday, we had the pleasure of hosting Dr. Jesse Moritz of Australian National University, whose presentation on leadership and societal changes in the Gulf provided a perfect start to launch this series. Today, we enter episode two of the series that focuses on energy in the Gulf. And our distinguished guest speaker for today is none other than Dr. Lee Chen Sin of Khalifa University in Abu Dhabi. Before Dr. Sin takes the stage to correct the common misconceptions that we tend to have about the Gulf and oil, please allow me to set the stage with some remarks. I shall now share my screen. I will say a few words about inter-regional crude oil trade flows, specifically between the Middle East and Asia, where Asia's economic emergence you know, takes center stage and is in part due to crude oil trade in the region. Developing East Asian countries are among the fastest growing economies in the world after China. And as you can see here, the hunger for oil has not diminished. Between 2016 and 2019, Asia accounts for more than two thirds of incremental oil demand, with both China and India being the most important oil consumers of the region. Where then, you may ask, is the oil flowing from and towards Asia? So on your screen, so on your screen, you can remark on the diagram flow of crude oil exports. And you will see in lime green, a very thick arrow on the right side of your screen, representing Iran, Iraq, Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, and the United Arab Emirates as the main exporters of oil to Asia. Then you may ask again, do we, Singapore, matter in the grand scheme of things? Although we are commonly known as the little red dot on the map, Singapore is important beyond its size due to its role in price discovery in the oil universe. As my colleague Tilak Doshi previously outlined to me, all the Middle East crude oil that flows to Asia is in fact priced by a price reporting agency office based here in Singapore, known as S&P Platts, or Platts for short. Dubai is a critical referencing point for oil supplies by the Middle East to Asian markets, but things may change with movements in Abu Dhabi. Singapore's Ministry of Foreign Affairs released a statement in June 2019 when oil tankers were attacked on the Gulf of Oman, close to the Straits of Hormuz, the world's most important oil artery. Six months later, in a speech addressed at one of our local universities, our foreign minister referred to the same incident and reaffirmed the fact that, and I quote, trade is in our life, lifeblood, so ensuring secure and open trade routes is of vital importance to us. With that, you can see where Singapore stands in terms of oil. Last Friday, our first speaker, Dr. Jesse Moritz, spoke about rents and the theory of the Gulf rentier state. The idea of rent really refers to the difference between the cost of producing a barrel of oil and its selling price. So the amount earned by the Gulf societies in this case and accumulated becomes a means of wealth distribution to Gulf societies. And this comes from the oil and gas industry. Simply put, if oil prices are lowered, then rent becomes reduced and the wealth distributed to Gulf citizens becomes smaller. So this becomes a cause of concern for different and various Gulf authorities as they try to diversify their sources of revenue away from oil, as you can see in the case of Saudi Arabia here, where there is you know, a column on non-oil revenue as an attempt to diversify away from oil. But as you can see, the economy has not progressed on most metrics and hence the numerous red dots in the table here. Finally, and you would have probably realized by now, energy does not only comprise oil, but other forms and also other techniques such as fracking 
which has allowed the US oil production to surge and boosting its economy and in turn tame carbon emissions. The United States under the Biden administration is of course a strong proponent of tackling climate change, which will also explain the global turn towards renewable energy. Finally, something else worth noting is that Qatar is the leading exporter for liquefied natural gas or LNG, and Singapore has just signed a deal with them last November. So I believe I've spoken more than I should, and there is an expert here today who is much better placed to speak about these issues, and that is our guest speaker for today, Dr. Lee Chen Sim. Dr. Sim is an assistant professor at Khalifa University in the UAE and a specialist in the political economy of Russian and Gulf energy and its intersection with international relations. She published a book titled Low Carbon Energy in the Middle East and North Africa two months ago, and we, we are delighted to have her with us, with us today. So before I begin, I would like to say that following her presentation, we'll have a Q&A segment where you, the audience, can key in your questions via the chat box or raise your hand on Zoom so that we can unmute you to ask your question. So a very warm welcome, Dr. Sim. If I may begin and kick off your presentation with a question, which country is Singapore's largest source of oil exports? Over to you, Dr. Sim. I think we can't hear you. You have to unmute. Yep, that's, there you go. Thank you very much, Clemens, for inviting me. I am really, really pleased um, to be here um, for many reasons, uh, one of which is that, um, you know, this is kind of like national service being a Singaporean, but I'm away in the um, UAE. Um, so um, it's a very happy form of national service. So um, thank you very much again, uh, Clemens and the MEI for inviting me here today. Now, um, Clemens started off um, asking you a question about um, which country is the um, biggest um, source of uh, oil imports for Singapore. And I really am quite curious to see what many of you uh, answered. Um, you know, I, I wish this was more like, you know, you could press the counters and, and I could see your answer, but unfortunately um, we can't do that. So I'm going to guess that most of you um, would have probably guessed um, Saudi Arabia, right? Um, and so let me take you through some of the five top five myths from my perspective um, here, living here in the Gulf, um, about uh, energy in the Gulf. Okay, what are some of the myths associated with this region? Now, um, if you had guessed that Saudi Arabia is the largest oil producer. This is the first myth I'd like to address. As with all myths, um, you know, there is always a certain truth, right, um, uh, with regards to myths. And in this case, it, it is true that Saudi Arabia was the largest oil producer in the world for many years, right, as you can see from this chart. Um, however, and here is where we need to examine the myth a bit more closely, um, uh, UAE is, uh, sorry, the Saudi Arabia is no longer the, um, sorry, let me just go back. Uh, Saudi Arabia is no longer the world's largest producer of oil, right? Um, in fact, this belongs to the US and it has been this way since um, about 2017. The US is the largest oil producer in the world. Uh, its share having gone up from 8% to 18%, whereas Saudi's share has gone down from 13% in 2006 to about 12.4%. So Saudi Arabia is no longer the largest oil producer in the world. And to answer the question that was posed by Clemens, um, Singapore uh, gets, uh, well, the country that supplies most of our oil is actually not Saudi Arabia. It is not the US but it is the UAE, okay? Uh, United Arab Emirates, a country where I'm based. Um, this is really interesting. Um, and I'll talk more about that in a bit. Now, um, having said, having talked about the myth about Saudi Arabia being the largest oil producer, um, I would also like to go a little bit deeper and address the question, okay, 
leaving aside oil production, because you know Saudi Arabia is also being uh, constrained by its OPEC quotas, how about oil exporters? Is Saudi Arabia then uh, the largest oil exporter in the world? Uh, the difference between the two, producer and exporter, being that you may not actually export all the oil you produce because some of it could be consumed domestically. And if we look at this, yes, um, you know, for many years, uh, traditionally, Saudi Arabia has been the largest oil producer, as you can see from the charts uh, in the left and in the middle. Um, but then um, recently, uh, as you can see, Saudi Arabia has dropped down the rankings and is no longer um, the largest exporter in the world um, and largest exporter being um, the UAE, the United Arab Emirates, right? Now, why is this interesting or why is this of concern, particularly for Saudi Arabia? Well, um, one of the reasons why Saudi Arabia is, uh, has reduced its exports of oil has got to do with um, partially the quotas from, from OPEC, but also because of its power mix. Um, Saudi Arabia, in its uh, producing electricity, unlike the UAE, which produces almost all of its electricity from gas, Saudi Arabia produces about half of its electricity from oil and the other half from gas. Right? So as the population grows, um, it needs to put in more oil in order to produce electricity. Uh, so there's much more domestic consumption, particularly in the summertime, uh, where, you know, Clemens mentioned that it's, you know, uh, muggy and rainy in Singapore. Well, it's beautifully warm here, um, where I am now, the outside temperatures are about 44 degrees Celsius. So you can imagine how much AC air conditioning um, Saudi Arabia would require in the summertime, particularly since half its mix comes from oil, the other half comes from gas. Right? Um, so um, the fact that uh, Saudi Arabia is um, uh, no longer the largest exporter, is of concern to Saudi Arabia uh, in terms of the rents or the revenue um, that they can earn from exporting oil, as Clemens suggested in his um, uh, brief remarks um, earlier. Now, again, let's go in a little bit deeper into this myth. So we've kind of said that Saudi Arabia is no longer the largest oil producer. It is no longer the largest oil exporter. Um, Saudi Arabia is also one of the largest oil consumers in the world. And this is a fact that is not um, broadly known. If you look at the chart here, Saudi Arabia is actually the fifth largest consumer of oil in the world. Right? And what it means is that you know, more and more of its domestic production is being consumed domestically, right? In the past, something like a quarter of its domestic oil production would be consumed domestically. But as I mentioned, as population grows, as industry needs more electricity, as um, petrochemicals need more feedstock for its um, chemical, for its refineries, um, up to one third of oil production today is actually consumed domestically. And that's a big deal because that means that there are a lot of foregone revenues in terms of opportunity cost. So um, the fact that Saudi Arabia is no longer the largest oil producer or oil exporter and that it consumes a lot of its oil is an issue not just for Saudi Arabia, but also for some of the countries that depend on uh, oil imports like Singapore. So um, as I mentioned just now, the UAE is actually the largest exporter of oil to Singapore since about 2012-ish, right? Before that, it was Saudi Arabia. Now, um, I'm gonna move on to the second myth. Right? And the second myth uh, that is often associated with Gulf energy is that the Gulf is all about oil and gas, right? When we talk about oil, um, we talk about oil wells in everybody's backyard, and it seems that the Gulf is all about oil and gas. Well, in a, in a sense, why shouldn't it be, right? Um, 
as Clemens alluded to, the production costs, um, the cost of producing oil in the Gulf is one of the lowest in the world. The Gulf has huge comparative advantage in terms of oil and gas. Saudi Aramco, as you can see in the chart on the left, is one of the lowest production costs of oil and gas in the world. Um, uh, yes, it's true that the Gulf depends a lot on its revenues from oil. As you can see in the chart on the right, around, depending on different years, 60 to 80% of all revenues earned in the Gulf states comes from the oil industry. So yes, again, as in, in a myth, this is partly true. The Gulf does depend a lot on oil and gas uh, in terms of revenues, and why shouldn't it? Because it's got comparative advantage. Um, is this a problem or, or where, where is the myth? Where is the part of the myth? Well, I'd like to um, suggest to you to think about the gas, uh, the Gulf as no longer just about oil and gas. In fact, when we look at the Gulf today, the Gulf is also more about other things. If you look at the chart on the right, you can see that the non-oil and gas sector, right, uh, more and more of the exports um, do come from the non-oil and gas sector, um, especially in um, Bahrain, uh, in UAE, for example, and in Oman, right? And all these countries have what they call their vision plans, which try to move them away from uh, oil and gas towards non-oil and gas industries. So um, in the pictures on the left, uh, I've tried to give you some examples of how the Gulf is not just about oil and gas. Um, in the UAE, you have a thriving steel industry, one of the largest companies in the world, Emirates Steel. Um, you have Global Foundries, which is one of the largest chip makers in the world, uh, based in the US, but owned by um, Abu Dhabi. Um, you have in Saudi Arabia, a renewable energy giant called Aquapower that is building renewable energy systems all over the world, including in Jordan in that picture there. Um, also in Uzbekistan, uh, you have UAE, who's also got a huge aluminum company that's actually trying, that's actually providing solar power aluminum to green minded companies like BMW. Uh, you have aluminum in Bahrain, which is the picture at the bottom, one of the largest smelters in the whole world. You have Oman, which is trying to diversify into tourism. And here you have Salala and in Oman, one of the big tourist spots. And of course, you have um, the film industry in the Gulf, especially in the UAE, um, that's been bankrolling some of these big Hollywood hits like The Help. Um, you have Fast and Furious, uh, you have Tom Cruise um, filming in Abu Dhabi as well. So the Gulf is not all about oil and gas, and Singapore companies have actually jumped in, um, not just in the oil and gas sector, where they've been quite strong, but also in the power sector, Semcor um, has taken you know, stakes in um, Abu Dhabi, in Abu Dhabi's power system, in Fujairah's power systems, as well as in Oman. Um, but it's also about services, because as the Gulf diversifies, there are opportunities for service companies. Uh, like, for example, in their custom systems in, in Qatar, Qatar turned to a Singapore company to provide the um, software for their custom systems. And there are many other such examples. Now, um, what is the issue then with this myth? Well, the issue is this. Yes, the Gulf is diversifying, as we've seen from the earlier slide, but do these other um, non-oil and gas sectors earn a lot of revenue? And the issue is for now, they don't actually, they, they can't replace the huge amounts of revenues brought in by the oil and gas sector, right? And um, the problem here is therefore that if the world, well, the world will move on uh, into a post uh, oil and gas world, maybe in 2050 or maybe later. But there are some Gulf states at risk because they are not moving fast enough because they are still dependent on a lot of um, hydrocarbon revenues. And I like this chart here because it shows that depending on where they are in their diversification, some Gulf states are more vulnerable in a post um, hydrocarbon world than others. 
right? Those that are doing quite well, uh, like the UAE because of its um, diversification. Um, those who are doing quite well are like Qatar because of its gas, right? Which is more low carbon than oil. Um, and some of those that are not doing very well are, for example, Iraq, um, uh, which you see on the right of the chart because almost 100% of the revenues uh, that it earns are from exports of oil, right? So um, this uh, issue about uh, diversification is a big one for the Gulf. I'll stop you for a bit because um, Clemens has flagged that he's got a question. Yes, Lee Chen, thank you for, for correcting all the misconceptions so far. And with all your myths, can I just ask one question and interject with a question by asking, you know, before the sanctions placed on Iran, you know, was the country self-sufficient in energy? You know, how true is this statement? Okay, um, very good question. So um, before the sanctions, uh, I, again, I would love to hear, you know, what most of you think because it's one of those myths. And I would answer that by just um, uh, showing you this slide. Um, this, this myth comes about because it seems that the Gulf is quite energy secure. It's, it's self-sufficient, given that you know almost half of the um, global oil reserves in the world comes from the Gulf. Um, about one third of global gas reserves comes from the Gulf. So it seems that they are pretty self-sufficient. Um, but to answer your question, Clemens, um, Iran before sanctions, funnily enough, strangely enough, actually did uh, import energy. It imported um, petroleum, right, um, gasoline to put into the cars that were running in Iran. Why? Um, because there were not enough refineries in Iran. Iran was really focused on production, on producing crude oil and gas, and therefore it was not um, putting its revenues into um, building refineries because it rather its revenues go to exploring oil and gas, maintaining the oil and gas systems. So actually it imported around 40% at one point of all the petroleum that was being pumped into cars, um, which is a really strange situation in you know, an energy rich country. So thank you for that question. Um, so um, the myth, this is a myth that the Gulf is energy secure. Right? It's not just about Iran, but it's also, as you will see, about the other Gulf states, despite the fact that even in terms of renewable energy, the Gulf is, you know, basically 24-7, well, not 24-7, but it's, it's got sunshine all year round. Um, it has uh, recorded among the lowest uh, uh, prices for solar um, electricity in the world um, below, uh, you know, around two US cents, uh, just below two US cents per kilowatt hour, which is record breaking uh, in the world. Um, it's not just Iran that has, you know, some issues with energy security. Other Gulf states, you know, funnily enough, are also not really energy uh, self-sufficient. And here I can cite the examples of um, the UAE. It actually imports gas uh, from Qatar. As I mentioned earlier, um, Abu Dhabi almost, well, about 97% currently of its uh, electricity is supplied from gas-fired power stations. Uh, unfortunately for the UAE, it does not have enough um, gas of its own, or at least, you know, it's very expensive for the UAE to actually exploit um, gas uh, that it has because it's got um, high sulfur content and therefore uh, it's, it's very expensive to produce. It's much cheaper to actually import it from uh, neighboring Qatar. So the UAE is not self-sufficient in gas. Um, Iraq is another country that is not uh, energy secure, partly because of its civil wars. Um, because of its um, aging infrastructure that it has not had enough money to um, rebuild. So it actually imports um, uh, energy, uh, electricity, even uh, from, from Iran, right? Imports um, oil from Iran as well. Um, Kuwait, same thing. Uh, the second picture there shows a floating liquefied natural gas um, import system into Kuwait. Uh, it, it does not have, again, enough gas to power its uh, electricity uh, system. 
uh, creates another country that uh, has half, half, half oil, half gas in its electricity uh, system. And so because it does not have enough gas, it has actually to import gas and it actually has built a floating LNG system in Kuwait, which is operational. Um, and funnily enough, looking at the third picture um, at the bottom, coal, right? Um, the Gulf states um, do import coal for their uh, as input into their power stations. And this is uh, Dubai, which comes to mind. It, 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 is, it will be importing coal when its coal-powered station actually uh, comes online. So again, another example of how uh, the Gulf is not energy secure. What about petrol? Does the Gulf import petrol? Um, yes, um, they do import some amounts of um, petrol. Uh, in the UAE, for example, they used to import um, some amounts of petrol, but then they started building their own um, refine more of their own refineries. And today, very little petrol is, is being imported. But this is not the same all over um, the other Gulf states, right? So for different reasons, um, you know, uh, instability, not enough gas, gas is too expensive to exploit, um, etc. Because uh, and so for all these reasons. The Gulf is not actually um, very uh, energy secure. And some of you may say, well, what about renewable energy? Um, does that make the Gulf energy secure? It's a really good point. Um, yes, in a sense, the Gulf can generate its own solar electricity. And it is, and they are taking on really big projects to do that, especially in solar, um, less so in wind. But even then, um, the Gulf does not produce uh, the things that, that goes into renewable energy, like solar panels, like silicons, like inverters, like turbines, like magnets for the turbines. So you know, these things still have to be imported because um, the manufacturing uh, industries for these kinds of components, they're not found in the Gulf. So in that sense, yes, once the renewable energy systems, uh, the, the solar systems and the wind turbines are up, then it's not so bad. Um, but, you know, still the point is that the Gulf is not totally energy secure. Moving on to the fourth myth. I love this one because I always hear this, right? Wow, Lee Chen, it's fantastic. You're living in the UAE. It's great. Petrol is cheaper than water. That's why you all drive, you know, huge cars, 4x4 gas guzzlers, because petrol is so cheap there, right? Is this a myth or is this true? Now, um, it, it is true, petrol is pretty cheap here. Um, as you can see in the chart there, um, petrol prices in the Gulf on average, if you average out all the different grades of, of petrol, um, about, uh, you know, about 50 cents, 50 US cents on average, which amounts to about 65 Singapore cents per liter. So yes, that is obviously very, uh, cheap compared to I think about two I don't know two dollars and fifty cents maybe in the U.S. on uh, two dollars fifty cents in Singapore on average. So yes, petrol is really cheap, right? And that explains you know the the, the cars that you see in the Gulf, the really big ones. We always joke that the national car here is actually the um, you know the big um, the big Toyotas, the big patrols. Um, uh, you know, it's, it's huge, right? Five, six liter kind of cars. But uh, here, along with the myth, is it cheaper than water? Well, yes. Okay, it, it, this myth is actually true. Um, it is cheaper than water since water, uh, an average one liter bottle that you buy in the supermarkets is less than 40 US cents, whereas petrol in the Gulf is, you know, averages around 50 US cents. So it's, it's kind of true that petrol is cheaper than bottled water here in the Gulf. Now, um, this goes actually to a larger discussion point I'd like to share with you, and it's about subsidies. Right? Um, energy is heavily subsidized here, as is water, as is a lot of other things, but we'll get into that. Um, so uh, energy here is hugely subsidized. right? Um, they have uh, uh, actually increased the prices of petrol. What you are seeing in the chart before is actually the increased price of petrol. Because if you were to see that chart five years ago, petrol would have been very much cheaper. 
Um, but the Gulf states have realized that um, subsidizing patrol is taking up quite a lot of you know, money. So they have tried to um, reduce the amount of subsidies with regards to patrol. Um, it's not always successful. Sometimes they have to you know, um, increase subsidies when there are um, unhappiness. But in general, um, patrol, uh, you know, quite a lot of subsidies for that have been reduced uh, or even done away with in the case of the UAE. There is a big case for doing away with subsidies. Um, energy economists or economists in general will say that subsidies are very wasteful because they, um, you know, they distort um, resource allocation. Um, that, that means, for example, that it's you know, very cheap, let's say, to set up an aluminum smelter in the Gulf because the inputs like, like electricity is pretty cheap because it's subsidized since gas is subsidized, right? So um, uh, there, there is a case for doing real subsidies because it wrongly allocates resources. Subsidies also benefit normally the, um, the rich, right? It, it doesn't really help the poor. Um, the rich are actually benefiting because, well, the rich really don't need subsidies to have huge cars because the rich are the ones that um, buy the patrol. Uh, so there is a big case for doing away with subsidies. But um, in the Gulf, um, there is an equally a case for retaining subsidies. Uh, the case being, well, you know, we can afford, most of the Gulf states can kind of afford it. Yes, we know that it eats up about 4 to 6% of GDP in the Gulf, but, you know, we can kind of afford it. It's a comparative advantage here in the Gulf. Uh, it's a way of attracting um, companies to set up here because of you know the relatively cheap inputs. Uh, the delivery companies here are a dime a dozen because you know a lot of patrol, electricity, uh, patrol. Uh, yeah, they are being subsidized. So there is a case of retaining subsidies here because we are trying to diversify and attract new kinds of businesses. They like to have cheaper costs of doing business. Um, however, the the point here is that not all the Gulf states. Um, are able to continue giving some form of subsidies um, for water, gas, and electricity. You have the richer states, um, uh, Qatar, UAE, and Kuwait, richer because they have sovereign wealth funds, right, kind of like Tomasic. So they have sovereign wealth funds that have saved up for a rainy day from oil and gas uh, revenues. And also these three countries have very small um, populations, native populations. So they can afford to keep on giving subsidies. Right. Um, so you have rich states which are able to retain some of these subsidies. You have the not so well of states like Oman and Bahrain, which have dwindling um, hydrocarbon resources that are not um, as able to continue subsidies. And you have Saudi Arabia, which is kind of in between because yes, it's got huge um, revenues, a huge sovereign wealth fund, but at the same time, it's got a huge population and therefore if you divide it per capita, uh, they, you know, the amount of uh, subsidies that they have to give is it, going to be quite huge. Um, so, so there is a move to try to reduce uh, these kinds of um, energy subsidies. Finally, the fifth myth. Again, something I hear very often. The Gulf states, the Gulf countries are so lucky to have oil. Luckiest countries in the world. You know, all the Gulf um, nationals have, have oil wells in their backyard. They're so lucky um, because they have huge purchasing power. Um, it enables them to, to build up a lot of reserves for future generations um, because they have these huge funds that have enabled them to buy things like um, Harrods, uh, the, the Qataris own that. Um, they can buy, um, you know, this big, um, uh, class uh, landmark buildings in the UK, in Singapore, uh, in Marina Bay. Uh, so they've got huge purchasing power. They've all got huge villas and cars, which is what I always hear. They've got drivers, they've got you know, a few drivers, a few gardeners, a few um, helpers. Um, these countries have great economic development. Um, their human development index, according to the World Bank, is way up um, because they have great medical systems like Cleveland Clinic, We've got all the brand name, Harley Street, Morphew Eye Hospital. Um, so we've got a lot of good schools as well. 
Uh, we're so lucky because the citizens are all well taken care of. If they want to get married, there is a marriage fund for them. Um, jobs are basically guaranteed, at least in the old days. Um, you don't pay income taxes. Um, so you have expats like me there because we don't have to pay income taxes um, because the Gulf states um, get their revenues from oil and gas. So I always hear this refrain, Gulf, the Gulf countries are really lucky to have oil. And no wonder that you know the UAE and Saudi Arabia, according to global polls, are among, actually are the happiest, among the happiest countries, are the happiest countries in the Arab world. No wonder, right? So then the question is, is this a myth that the Gulf countries are lucky to have oil? And I would suggest that you kind of have to look a little bit deeper. Um, lucky in what sense? Uh, if you look here in these two charts, what it's basically telling you is that the Gulf states, that the GCC, the Gulf states um, that produce oil and gas here, um, they actually have done less well than their the, the Middle East and North Africa in general uh, during the pandemic, right? A much steeper fall and a much slower road to recovery is being projected, as you can see um, from the two graphs there, panel A and panel B. So in a sense, they're not that lucky because they are subject to revenue volatility. Oil prices go up and down, right? Um, they kind of look like that, right? They go up and down. Uh, and so there is no really stable, uh, you, you, it's very hard to plan when revenue is so volatile. You cannot plan a few years in advance because you don't know what your what kind of revenues you're gonna have, how much of it. Um, so in that sense, it creates a headache um, for Gulf states in terms of planning, which is why they're trying to smooth out the volatility by introducing um, value-added tax and other things. Um, the Gulf states are not so lucky in the sense also that because they have such a good oil and gas industry, it actually crowds out other kinds of sectors, you know, like um, maybe some of the um, local industries that could have benefited from bank support, from funding. They are being crowded out because banks are very happy to lend to, let's say, oil and gas related companies, right? So you don't really have a kind of fallback sector uh, that is outside of the oil and gas, which again, um, you know, speaks uh, speaks to the volatility in these Gulf economies because they don't have a big oil non-oil and gas sector. Another problem here is also about expatriate labor force, because the Gulf countries have so much oil and so much revenue, they depend a lot on expatriate labor, right? But in this age where there's a global talent race, Singapore is competing for global talent, so are the Gulf states. Um, you know, uh, how much can they depend on expatriate labor? What happens if oil and gas revenues decrease as everybody projects it to happen in a few decades, right? Will the Gulf states still be sustainable in terms of attracting talent? So I'm going to round up this by just giving you one takeaway, right? What can you talk about from this, um, this talk, right? And I, uh, one takeaway would be that um, I would suggest to you, the Gulf is changing, right? The Gulf, you thought that it's always iconic pictures, you know, oil and gas only. The Gulf is changing. It's no longer a one trick um, camel, right? It's, it's changing. Uh, it's, it's not just about oil and gas, it's also about renewable energy, it's also about non-oil and gas um, uh, sectors. So um, this will open up uh, opportunities uh, for Singapore as well. Um, but you know, don't go away thinking that the Gulf has always been the oil and gas um, place you knew it to be because it is changing. And with that, I'll stop. Very happy to take questions.